0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Once again, prepare to be impressed by the balance of Scripture. You'll find among human teachers, almost universally, that they are one-sided in their emphasis. Some of us have been in the pro-law church, It's all about do this, be good. That's a very important emphasis within Scripture. Others of us have been in the pro-grace church. It's all about God forgives. Bring your sin to God. He'll forgive you. And the pro-law people say, where's the emphasis on obedience? Where's the need to be like Jesus in this church? Scripture is never unbalanced. It's always perfectly balanced in its portrayal of Every side of the reality of God, His Word, His ways. And that is abundantly clear in our passage tonight. Exodus 32, verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, let him come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp. Let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about three thousand men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing for this day. For every man is opposed his son and his brother. And it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have sinned a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written." And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Let's pray. Father, please quiet our minds, still us from distraction, and help us to focus on what Your Word has to say as we see the Mediator who attacks sin and slays sinners unapologetically, but who also ascends the Mount and begs forgiveness for these same people whom He attacked. Lord, we pray that You would show us the perfection of Your Son, who is never one-sided or unbalanced, who loves sinners, but who also disciplines sinners. Father, show us your mediator who has power of life, power of death, power of ordination, power to come into your presence and to crave pardon for your people, which you then grant. Show us yourself, we pray, in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen. So in our text, as I just said, we see enough to satisfy... The biggest pro-law champion. Wow, look at that. These idolaters are slaughtered where they stand as the Levites walk through the camp, slashing heads off idolaters left and right. There's also enough to satisfy the biggest pro-grace champion as Moses ascends the mountain and begs before God, please forgive the people. Please, uh, if you don't, blot me out of the book which you have written. Moses offers his own life in the place of the people whose lives he took on the previous day. The Bible is perfectly balanced. It emphasizes equally God's law and God's grace. The mediator's intercession and the mediator's discipline. So what I hope to show you is that the mediator stands against sin and even kills sinners. But he also intercedes for sinners too. Well, you're probably familiar with the Enlightenment view that after this terrible wars of religion in the 17th century, Europeans decided that we were not going to fight wars of religion anymore. No doctrine is wrong enough to be worth killing for, so our Enlightenment friends told us. And therefore, wars of religion can be a thing of the past. Blasphemy, false worship, the state should have no categories for these things. Well... Friends, Moses was from the Bronze Age. He hadn't heard those ideas. He would have found them ludicrous if he did hear them. More importantly, God didn't hear that message either at the time when this text was written or today. I'm not saying that the state should bring back the death penalty for idolatry. We've talked about this. Our state is not equipped to tell the difference between male and female. It certainly can't tell the difference between true and false worship. But in principle, the Lord believes that sin deserves death. The civil code of Israel mandates the death penalty for idolatry. When Moses says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me, he's not asking for an extrajudicial killing. This is not a vigilante action. This is a righteous action on the part of the state, as constituted in the tribes of Israel in the wilderness, Moses calls out a posse, essentially, deputizes them on the spot, and says, the laws are being violated. We need some law enforcement officers who will put a stop to this idolatry. The idol was gone. Moses had already ground it up, at least in the way the narrative is told. Perhaps, of course, uh, part of this is out of order. But it seems that though the idol is gone... The sin lingers in the hearts of certain of the people. The rabbis have taught for a long time that when you drank the water with the golden calf burned within it, that would reveal where your heart was. And if it made you really sick, then it would be clear you were an idolater. And the Levites would come and kill the ones who were the sickest. Now that's not in the text. Uh, It's a clever explanation on the part of the rabbis, largely taken from Numbers 5, where the woman, suspected of unfaithfulness to her husband without evidence, has to drink a certain potion made from the ink of the laws about infidelity, and if her thigh rots and her belly swells, then she's known to be guilty. So based on analogy with that passage, perhaps drinking the golden calf produced a certain effect that made it clear who was to be killed. We don't know. We aren't sure how the Levites selected their targets. We'll talk more about that in a moment, how tiny a number of cases actually suffered the death penalty here. But before we get there, we should talk about the preface to this. Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them. People can get out of control. Israel was unrestrained, and their leaders... Aaron left in charge had failed to restrain them this is well known we call it the mob in 20th century America we had the lynch mob in ancient Byzantium and today we have sports mobs that riot and burn things when their team loses or when their team wins doesn't seem to matter we have political mobs that go and attack buildings right we have twitter mobs that gather and attack their enemies with angry words or publishing identifying information. There are even church mobs who gather and run people out of various churches. My dad was in church one day in the hills of North Carolina. The preacher got up for the announcement before the service, and he began with, well, the deacons have decided to run me out, but I'm going to run them out. Church mobs. People get out of control. And God is against that. Moses saw that they were unrestrained and Moses said, we must do something about this. The people cannot be out of control. They must be restrained. And of course, Moses, as the de facto king or dictator, the top political leader, whatever you want to call him in Israel, it's his responsibility more than anyone else's To make sure that the people are restrained. God is against chaos. And we should be too. And that means, of course, that we have to control ourselves. If you are, he who isolates himself, seeks his own desire. If you want to be out of control, you try to find ways to get out of discipline. To not be under someone else's watchful eye. Moses would not allow Israel to do that, of course. And in Numbers 25, Phineas does the same thing. The couple goes into the tent and Phineas says, I don't care. There's a tent there coming right in after him. So Moses sees that the people are unrestrained. And he also sees that to be for the calf is against the Lord. Thus his announcement, whoever is on the Lord's side, let him come to me. He doesn't say whoever is for order, whoever is for responsible government, Whoever is for getting rid of golden calves, he says, it's God or chaos. Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. What is he saying? If you like your idol, if you want to keep your idol, you can kiss your heavenly father goodbye. The calf is not some legitimate or half legitimate way of worshiping God. The calf is an utterly illegitimate way of worshiping. To eat and drink to it, to feast to it, to describe these characteristics to it of bringing you out of the land of Egypt is a way of sticking your finger in the Almighty's eye, saying, God, I care nothing for you. The same goes for the good things that we're tempted to worship today. It's not that money is some kind of half legitimate alternative to the true God, that pleasure is some kind of half legitimate alternative. These other gods we worship, freedom, adventure, finding a spouse, getting rid of the spouse you don't like. These are like the golden calf. To be on the side of the idol is to be against the Lord. Make any one of these things ultimate. Try to serve God by serving these things. And you'll find that you're not serving God at all. You're fighting Him. And so God says sin deserves death. Moses enforces the civil law of Israel and says, there's the death penalty. There's too many people for regular arrests and trials. We have to do this this way. So he calls the Levites and tells them, go through the camp, crisscross the camp, kill your brother, kill your companion, kill your neighbor if necessary. Now, again, we don't know exactly how they knew which ones to kill. We do know that they did not kill very many. It's unrecorded how many Levites there were. They were not numbered in the census. If you run a little statistical analysis on the numbers at the beginning of the book of Numbers, you'll find that the smallest of the 11 other tribes was Manasseh with 32,000 men. So if we posit that Levi is a major outlier and only 16,000 men, most of the Levites didn't kill anyone. Uh, Less than a fifth of the Levites, at most, actually killed someone. And the ones who were killed, 3,000 men, that is half of 1% of the Israelite men, or less than a quarter of 1% of the entire adult population. There's not a lot of people killed in this action, but certainly enough to stop the idolatry. The sons of Levi did, 3,000 fell. The mediator inflicts the death penalty in a tiny number of cases. Jesus will not stand for your sin. That doesn't mean he routinely puts people to death to stop their sin, but it does happen. It has happened. It continues to happen. He won't put up with sin forever. He exercises discipline on us, and that can include the death penalty. I don't ever calculate, oh, the penalty for this sin is light enough that I think I can get away with it. That's perhaps what some of the Israelites thought as they danced before the golden calf. Little did they know that they would feel cold steel in their guts as the Levites did their grisly duty. So The mediator inflicts the death penalty. The mediator also exercises the power of ordination. As he tells the Levites, consecrate yourselves to the Lord because of what you did. You were dedicated more to God than to family ties. God doesn't want divided loyalty where you say, I'll do what you ask of me so long as my mother approves, my friends approve, my society approves, my family approves. God demands exclusive 100% loyalty. I can't say it better than Jesus did. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Choose God over family brings God's blessing. These Levites were willing to execute the death penalty for idolatry that's mandated in Israel's civil code. You'll find among the servants of the state, there are many who are happy to do various bureaucratic jobs or even to exercise a certain amount of force, but who draw the line at the death penalty. Who will say, I'm not prepared to kill in the line of duty. I'm not sure I can do that. To kill in the line of duty takes a psychological and ethical toll on everyone who does it. Many people flat out refuse. These Levites did not. They were willing to enforce the laws of the land under the leadership of Moses according to the direct command of God. A situation may arise in which you have to decide between following God and having the approval of a member of your immediate family. Which will you choose? Very rarely does God ask us to kill in the line of duty. Typically only happens for people who are working for the state. Soldiers, cops, executioners. This was a one-off command that God gave in the aftermath of an extreme case of sin at the golden calf the overarching command is not kill idolaters but love god more than anything and anyone else jesus doesn't promise specific rewards to those who lose family members for his sake other than to say that whoever loses a family member for his sake in the gospels will receive it back Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospels, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So the mediator wields this power, the power of law, the power of life, the power of death, Law enforcement, the power of ordination. But the chapter does not end with verse 29, where the idolaters are killed and the Levites rewarded. Moses goes on to say, You have sinned a great sin. I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. The mediator seeks forgiveness for sinners. Again, as I said, we tend to get unbalanced. It's either one or the other. Either discipline or grace. It's hard for us to understand and apply both simultaneously. They're both here in the passage as Moses chastens the people for their sin, including the death penalty, and then turns around and begs the Lord to forgive them. The biblical approach is always to deal with the issues. Don't sweep it under the rug. Ask for forgiveness. Moses doesn't say, you have sinned a great sin, so let's see if we can get God to forget about it. He says, I will go to God and talk to Him about this sin. We read earlier in the Westminster Confession, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. And it adds in the larger catechism on the ninth commandment that thou shalt not bear false witness forbids hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession. Hiding, excusing, extenuating of sins. I admit it. I'm an expert in those three things. Many of us are. We have an acronym for it in the business world that I mentioned before, the CYA. What is that? That is hiding, excusing, and extenuating of sins. That's exactly what it is. You've done it. I've done it. Aaron did it with his ridiculous excuse. I threw the gold in the fire and out came this calf, hiding, excusing, extenuating his sins. But the mediator doesn't do it. The mediator will never do it. And that's why Moses goes up to God and says, these people have sinned a great sin and made for themselves a God of gold. Moses doesn't go up the mountain and say, Lord, I think we're overreacting a little bit. A quarter of 1% of the adult male population, isn't that a bit much? No, Moses doesn't try to hide the sin, excuse the sin, lessen the sin. Moses openly confesses the sin. If you'll notice, the people don't even attempt to confess their sin in these chapters. Though they do show signs of mourning at the beginning of the next chapter. The mediator, though, does it for them. He confesses their sin, directly to God. Now that's not to say don't confess your sins, Jesus will do it for you. I think it's safe to say, based on the rest of Scripture, that those who never privately dealt with God over their worship of the golden calf never found forgiveness or reconciliation. But at the same time, the Mediator assists you in confession and repentance. He intercedes with the Father for forgiveness. He helps you confess, but you have to confess. Confess. (coughs) the mediator confesses the people's sin and then he offers his life in their place. If you will forgive their sin, do so, but if not, blot me out of your book which you have written. Moses asked to be blotted out of the book of life if God will not save the people. To say, Lord, your attachment to me is such, I know you don't want to kill me, Therefore, you don't want to kill the people either. Like Christ, He offers His life in the people's place. To say, if you won't save them, send me to hell. But save them. But the Lord refuses to accept Moses' life. Moses is not the ultimate mediator. He can't offer his life on behalf of a sinful people. He needs someone to do that for him. The Lord says, instead, whoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Ouch, right? Israel is all going to be blotted out, but then, no, they're not. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. My angel shall go before you. God reiterates his promises. You will go to the promised land. The angel will go ahead of you. And you will receive exactly what I promised you. Your sin won't stop God's promise to lead you to heaven. Not unless you let it. God forgave those who worship the golden calf. And he says again, they're coming to the promised land. I will bring you in with my angel. That's pretty astonishing. He repeats it again in verses 2 and 3 of the next chapter, which we'll look at next week. As if to say, Moses, I know you have a hard time believing this, but it's true. The sin of the people will not stop me from keeping my promises to them. My angel will go before you. I will never leave you nor forsake you is not a promise given to perfect people. It's a promise given to sinful people. It's a promise given to us. If you come in here with sin on your conscience, don't say... That's it. God's promises are over. No, God's promises are still there. They still stand. And that's why he reiterates, my angel will go before you. Just as he said in chapter 23. Nonetheless, he reserves the right to visit Israel. On the day when I visit, I will visit them for their sins. Now this visitation can be positive or negative. This is simply God drawing near like the inspector general. And depending on what he finds, the consequences are either positive or negative. We've seen this word visit before in the book of Exodus. Exodus 4, the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. God visited them in their oppression in Egypt And delivered them. But he reserves the right to visit them and punish them for their sin. The verb also appears in Zechariah's prophecy at the beginning of Luke Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. God will travel with them, but he reserves the right to visit them. The chapter ends on an ominous note. The Lord smote the people. Because of what they made because of the calf which they made, which Aaron made. How? When? Where? Why did God how did God smite the people? It doesn't say. Except perhaps you can maybe take it as the beginning of the next chapter when he tells everyone to take off their ornaments and show mourning, but smiting seems to be something worse than that. Don't sin, calculate that the judgment will be something you can endure. Even after the idol was burned, even after they drank the powder, even after 3,000 were struck down in a single day, God smote the people. Even though Moses pled for their forgiveness. And it's all here. The mediator perfectly forgives, perfectly intercedes, but also perfectly disciplines and chastens. So beware. Do not take sin lightly. Your God doesn't. Your Savior doesn't. You mustn't, if you want to enter the promised land. Flee to the mediator for life. Ask Him to make atonement for your sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the perfect balance and accuracy in Your portrayal of Your mediator Lord, we ask that you would help us to hate sin with every fiber of our being, to stand against it, but also, Father, to be as gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness as Moses was, as Jesus is. Help us to be little paracletes who intercede for one another, who also, when necessary, rebuke and discipline one another according to our place and calling. Father, we pray these things. Asking for your help by the Spirit of holiness. Amen.